Hello and welcome to another episode of the Supported Return to Training Yorkshire and Humber podcast on international medical graduate doctors. Today I have Dr. Christina with me. She is an ST3 in paediatrics here in Yorkshire. Dr. Christina moved to the UK in 2015. She started with a clinical attachment and this was followed by a trust grade F1 job. And she's eventually moved on to training in paediatrics in Yorkshire and she's now in her ST3 year. She's very involved with the BMA and is also very passionate about paediatrics. Today, she will be covering a few very interesting topics, including her experiences and learning about communication uh, as an IMG trainee around workplace-based assessments. She will also be talking about her experiences of less than full-time training, as well as cultural differences she experienced in training compared to her home country of Romania. She also had some very good experiences with supervisors, and she will be sharing some of that with us today. And last but not least, she will briefly talk about some of the resources that the BMA has for us. So welcome, Dr. Christina. I'm very pleased to have you on with us today. Thank you so much for having me today. It means a lot. So let's start off with the first question of what was your journey like of applying to paediatric training and how have you been finding it? In Romania, the application to specialty training is different. When Once you finish medical school, you have to have an idea about what you want to do with your future. We don't have foundation years, so from finishing medical school, you jump into the specialty that you want to do should you get the right marks on the national exam. So when I came here, I expected to not enjoy foundation training. I knew I wanted to be a paediatrician. I liked working with children and I knew that foundation training was really helpful in one helping me get adjusted to the NHS, but also it would make my life a lot easier to get into paediatric training, which in a way was true. But Mm. I think I was pleasantly surprised once I got into foundation training. I enjoyed it more than I thought I would. Mm -hmm. And well, I still prefer working with kids. I can't say that I would do it all over again if I were asked to do it tomorrow. So that's not my personality, but I did really, really enjoy it due to good training that I had. Yeah, it sounds like you had a really good experience of your clinical attachment and being in a trust grade F1 role gave you a good understanding of the NHS before you specialised in paediatrics. And from having spoken earlier, understand that you had some very good supervisors in supporting you to getting into paediatric training. From your perspective as an IMG early on in your career, what are key characteristics that made a supervisor helpful and good for you as an IMG? First of all, seeing the potential within me and helping the passion that I had grow. My first ever mentor was a paediatric cardiologist in Bristol. He was my first ever mentor from a clinical attachment and he was the one that spoke to me about personal specifications, helped me get involved in projects such as research projects or audits that I didn't even know about, helped me see the pathway to get into specialty training with different eyes. And the second very helpful supervisor, that was one helping me see, understand the system, be non-judgmental, seeing the potential within me. Not judge me 
when it came to my communication skills, thinking back at it, I had not that my English was poor when I moved to the UK, but my accent was definitely not as polished as it is now. For what it's worth, it was nearly non-existent. And he just saw beyond that. He never got upset when I couldn't think of the right word. He he was just always ever so supportive. Uh, he was the senior that I want to be one day. The second mentor was my educational supervisor from foundation training. I think our re- supervision re- relationship was kind of as if it was meant to be. He helped me grow so much. He supported me, had my ma- my back when it came to foundation training. I to help you understand in the trust great job and the clinical attachment didn't really grasp on what workplace based assessments were. I had no idea what I did in the clinical attachment. I tried to learn what F1s and F2 did on a day to day basis, but I didn't really understand the training element of it. I had no idea. I went into the trust grade job. I didn't have a portfolio. I tried printing out assessments from other trainees, from other foundation doctors, didn't really understand what they were. I think it was so much patience with me um, and just listened. He treated me like the person that I was and the person that I was going to become. He was really, really helpful. He would always be there when, whenever I needed him. Yeah, just not expect me to know anything, if that makes sense. Sounds like he was really good at, at striking that balance of being both encouraging, but also not assuming that you knew everything a UK-based trainee would know and sort of help support you in making up that, that gap of, of knowledge, because naturally you wouldn't because you haven't trained in a UK medical school. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think what struck me from them, from both of them, was they were both British born and bred. I didn't really expect them to have as much insight into what I was going through and my journey and how to support me as much as they did, which prized me looking back that they were exactly what I needed. Somehow they shaped themselves onto what I needed. Yeah, That's a really interesting point that you've brought up that, you know, these are supervisors who, who may not have experienced moving to a different country or a different healthcare culture, but they still provided that support you needed um, when you first were transitioning into training. Christina, you mentioned earlier about communication around workplace-based assessment, and I was wondering if you could share a bit more about your experience and your tips around how IMGs could get used to communicating with your colleagues about their workplace-based assessments. I suppose on the one hand, we have IMGs as trainees, and on the other hand, IMGs as trainers. So the communication is really important both ways. One, as a trainer, communicating with your juniors and and peers, the availability, should you have it, of doing workplace-based assessments with them Mm. and being there for that. But also as a trainee, knowing how important they are, what they are, knowing where to find the resources, then knowing how to fit in what you need with their timetable. It was really interesting in the year that I did just did as a HIMSS clinical teaching fellow, the students were encouraged to book meetings with their supervisors from year three, which I found really interesting because you already learn how to manage the timetable of your senior or how to fit yourself in, which is something that as an IMG, you, you never you never get taught. What I was advised to do is if it is a senior that has a secretary to try and speak to their secretary and try to book myself into their timetable. 
I've always found it a bit nerve-wracking because sometimes you don't want to upset your senior. You don't want to, because um, it feels like if I speak to their secretary, I'm taking a, I'm being a bit invasive into their schedule. But actually, sometimes it just is really helpful just to book yourself into their timetable, even if it is half an hour. And it is about taking responsibility of your portfolio and, and your learning, isn't it? I, as a trainee myself, I, I share I share that that discomfort about sort of trying to squeeze yourself into someone to, to a supervisor's already very busy schedule. But it is important and it is not just the trainees, but also the trainer's responsibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I remember in foundation because that was the the longest relationship I had with a supervisor was mm. two whole years. Um, me and his secretary knew each other so well because we would talk so often. She would know his schedule so well. <laughs> and it was it was so amusing. She'd be like, oh, he forgot about it again. I'll chase him. Don't worry. <laughs> but yeah, she would be that person that even if she had no relation professionally with me, yeah. she would give me a cup of tea. We would sit down. Yeah, it was it was a very good route of getting yourself uh, an option when it comes to getting your assessments signed off. And I guess the more you get into training and get used to the UK training, the more you start acknowledging the opportunities as they come along. For example, discussing a case with a senior and then asking them whether you could do a case-based discussion on that or a mini kex or identifying opportunities that your senior might not think about just because they are busy. Mm. Um, whereas if you don't have that that vision of if you don't see the UK training with UK training eyes, mm. it can be quite nerve wracking and you can get quite late into your portfolio um, should you not have somebody to, to explain to you how how you should, yeah. what your time frame should be. Yeah. Speaking of the portfolio, regardless of whatever specialty you're in, the team assessment of behaviour, otherwise known as multi-source feedback, is always is always one that can be very can be very anxiety-inducing, both in collecting and in sort of communicating with other members of the team. What has your experience of that been like? I've had both positive and negative experiences. I think the supervisor is really important when it comes to your multi-source feedback, but also knowing what is good feedback and what isn't. Now that I know what good feedback is, I've know I've started to filter what I get. If it's productive feedback, if it gives me a plan of action, that's great. If it's not, I try to find a plan of action with my supervisor. If they can't provide that, then it might have to be filtered out because I think, and I think that's really important for everybody that is listening to know how to give productive feedback. If you have something to tell mm. someone, just give them a plan of action. And also for supervisors, it's really important to discuss with your trainees objectively, but also empathetically at the, the feedback that they receive. For example, when I was in foundation, my communication skills guide, I was in, I had only been in the country for a year or two. So I would not have that as much of a good eye contact. My mannerisms were more robotic because I was thinking constantly about my grammar. I didn't study medicine and English either. So everything was really new to me. And my colleagues were British. So it, there was a, an obvious discrepancy between me and everyone else. And communication used to be one of the elements that would always come back into my feedback. That communication needs to be better. Communication needs to be better, not in a productive way, but but that's where my supervisor, because we all have imposter syndrome, and we've obviously it, it is hard, and it's hard for somebody that doesn't know a, a second language to understand what you're going through and why your mannerisms are the way they are. His compassion when it came to that feedback was outstanding. He 
I said something along the lines of, but objectively, this is your second language. Communication will come up and that's OK. We don't expect you to be like a British citizen, but you have improvements to make. And that's something that you know already that they have to highlight something. If they don't highlight it, it's as if it doesn't exist. So even if it is hurtful, it is the reality and that's OK, which I found really useful. Just that reassurance that actually because I knew that already if yeah. and then having like a plan of action doing the communication course something that could prove that I was working on it yeah thank you for sharing that Christina that's such an excellent example of you working with your supervisor and identifying very important area where you can grow and it sounds like you've you've grown a lot since foundation as well I understand that you are currently are working less than full time and we've talked a bit about sort of your experience of that. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what your experience of not just working less than full time, but also the experience and your journey of going into less than full time training. I'd never thought about going less than full time simply because of the cultural misconceptions around working part time from back home. My dad still doesn't not that he doesn't understand why I'm working less than full time, but it took him a long time to leave aside the stigma around working part time. The idea that you are less because you are less than full time and just trying to explain to them why I needed to be less than full time and why I just can't do what a full time trainee does. My body doesn't allow me to do so. And that's OK. I'm still just as a good doctor when I'm at work as everyone else. It's just I need a bit more rest than everyone else. And that's all right. It's difficult when you want to settle into a team and there are already some gaps in in terms of knowing the system. I feel like even though I've been in the country for seven years, there are still quite a lot of unknowns to me. And there is still some slowness to how I act on some items that there, there still is a tiny difference or it might just be me being perfectionistic, but being less at work is sometimes difficult but it is something that I have to accept that I I need and stopping myself from doing things on in my time off booking my supervision meetings when I'm on my less than full-time days mm. when you don't have your children to look after as a re or a relative to look after as a reason for your less than full-time and it's just your physical health or mental health it can be a bit hard to just say stop today I'm not reading any emails today. I'm not booking my meetings to see my supervisor today. I'm actually looking after myself. Thank you for sharing that. That's so important. I'm sure even with you working less than full time, you you are always busy because that's the person you are. We've talked about communication, workplace-based assessments, your supervisors. I understand that you're very involved with the BMA and we connected initially because of our passion for what, what difference we can make to the international medical graduate doctor community. Would you mind sharing a bit about what you know that the BMA has in terms of resources for international medical graduate doctors? Absolutely. I think on the, in the lines of less than full-time trade unionism and where big institutions like HE and BMA can make a big difference, the only thing that I wanted to mention is that I was really lucky to 
be European, even though Brexit just messed up my life a little bit at the beginning, as it did for all of us that came from that side of the world. I was not on a visa, so I was lucky from a health perspective to be able to go less than full time without having a minimum income required for the visa because I was just about meeting the threshold. However, now with the BMA and Academy of Royal Medical Colleges, they've worked really, really hard along with HEE to lower the threshold for visa income. So now international medical graduates can apply for less than full-time training with a lower threshold when it comes to income, which is really important. I don't really know how I would have done my job otherwise at that time. It's hard to think that you could lose your job or that your health might be a stepping stone when it comes to, to doing your job and your training that you obviously moved countries to, to do. So this was a really important step. When it comes to the BMA, they, the resources available for IMGs has developed significantly over the last years. I joined it initially because of their library, because my medical school didn't have access to papers, to medical papers and books as much as the BMA the BMA's library did. So that was my main reason. At the moment, the BMA has just launched an affiliate membership for international medical graduates where you pay £44 a year and you get access to resources to help you adapt to the NHS. They have resources to help INGs understand, for example, what their first day at work would look like, as well as immigration advice services. We have very highly qualified and trained members of staff that are very well informed when it comes to immigration law, immigration rights, and they can help with that, as well as support for things like bullying, um, well-being, mental health. You can have an advocate that can speak in your name or help you learn how to address a certain issue, knowing how to read your payslip to know that you're paid correctly. And if you're a locally employed doctor, not in training, they can read your contract and see whether there are some elements that should be different within your contract. Because there's so much to know when you come to a new country, training and, well, the pathway of training and your employment rights aren't going to be necessarily on your top list of things to know. It is very, very important. Thank you for sharing that. We're coming to the end of our episode today and I wanted to ask you three closing questions. So we'll start off with what is one key piece of advice you have for new or incoming international medical graduates? My main advice would be to believe in your potential and remember why you came. Nobody other than you understands how difficult your journey was. So make sure that you never forget what your worth is. That's a very powerful message. And Christina, my my next question is, what advice do you have for educators to international medical graduate colleagues who have recently transitioned into the NHS? I want to reassure educators and trainers in a sense that we don't expect you to know or understand us. We all have cultural differences and the main important thing that an IMG is looking for is for a mentor and somebody that can help them grow. We left our home country for a specific reason and it's such a difficult move to make. We've sacrificed so much and being aware of that and working with them as individuals rather than trying to make something fit into a box in which they'll never fit and that's okay is really important. Seeing them with the different 
but very important assets that they can come into the job with. That's a really good point about valuing the diversity that international medical graduate trainees bring with them. And you'll be glad to know, uh, this brings me on to my last question. What advice do you have to general members of staff working in the NHS who are working with IMGs who have just started in the NHS? I always get a bit emotional when it comes to talking about the, the members of staff that we work with in hospitals. I came here on my own and the hospitals and the members of staff would usually be my family. They were my family that I spent my Christmases with that would know more than my mum and dad, what I was doing, what my life was like. They would be the ones that I would cry next to. And I know that's not how some of the members of staff see their colleagues and their teams, but for some of us, they will be our only family. None of us are here to, to hurt anyone or to, to make it one's life more difficult. We're here for what we're passionate about, which is medicine. We've sacrificed everything that we had to come to work for the patients that we're looking after and for the team that we're working with. I think my plea rather than advice would be to reach out to those quiet ones because they might be the ones that might need a hand to hold or a hug. Yeah. There's something there about members of staff working with IMGs having the power to to create that sense of belonging do you say? I think that's it. I think that sense of belonging is so so important because most of us when we go back we go back to either parents that are asking us to go back home or to parents that are worrying or to an empty room or literally an empty two by two room to debt to missing to worry and that you can't build that on your own unfortunately you need others to support you in that and that has such a positive impact long term well thank you very much Christina for sharing all of your thoughts and experiences with us today I think you've made some really powerful points um thank you for coming on to the podcast thank you so much for having me Hello again, and thank you for listening to this podcast. The introduction and ending music is called Happy Day by Stock Music and was obtained from Pixabay. I would appreciate any feedback from you as a listener. Please complete the feedback form in the link attached to this episode and feel free to drop me an email or reach out via Twitter. I'm looking forward to hearing from you and I hope you have found this episode valuable in improving your knowledge around topics relating to international medical graduate doctors and their transition into the NHS. Goodbye for now.